All right, folks, welcome to the Monsters Madness and Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now, in this episode, I chat with actor, writer, and producer Jason Ali Sharon about Are You Afraid of the Dark, storytelling, screenwriting tips, the supernatural, and more. As always, thank you for listening. And if you'd like to help the show grow, please leave us a review wherever you're listening to the podcast. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. Hey, watch it, man. I'm sorry. Frank Moore, you're here to be considered as a new member of the Midnight Society. Yeah, what's with the blindfold? This meeting place is secret? Yeah, and you're not in yet. Swell. Who sponsors Frank? I do. He's a good guy. Yeah, but can he tell a good story? Who said that? To be a member, you have to tell us a scary tale. Then we vote. And it has to be unanimous or you're not in. You ready? Hey, I'm ready. Are you guys ready? Ooh, I'm scared now. Sorry. Not unless you get in. You're the sponsor, Dave. You gotta start it. Remember how to do it? Just say the word. Anytime. Okay, let's do it. Submitted for the approval of the Midnight Society. I call this story... The Tale of the Phantom Cab. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper, here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Take us back in time. You're a youngster. You're a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all of the above. Fort builder, book reader. Yeah, actually, all of the above. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I read the Hardy Boys. I read Judy Bloom, Encyclopedia Brown. Actually, DJ McHale, the creator of Are You Afraid of the Dark, I think actually worked on the Encyclopedia Brown TV show as well. I mean, just a lot of the classics like Huck Finn, Tom Sawyer, Dickens. What about formative films and TV shows? What comes to mind when you think about your childhood? I think Back to the Future. I mean, I think also, like, as a storyteller, that was, like, just such an eye-opening movie. It still is. I just think it's a perfect movie. My dad and I used to watch The Godfather a lot. Both of them, I've seen those movies, like, 35 times. <laughs> those are pretty formative, I would say. You know, any Steven Spielberg. But I think personality, I think definitely Back to the Future and then and then the Godfather movies. Gotcha. Oh, now, were your parents, were they involved in the business at all? No, not at all. My dad was a an accountant. He taught, he was a professor. He taught accounting and finance at University of British Columbia. My mother was a teacher, an elementary school teacher. And I don't know where this came from. I had a desire to do this. So no, they didn't want us to do this at all. And not that they weren't supportive, but this came from like out of nowhere. My mom said like we had a lot of energy. And so she just sort of enrolled us in swimming and acting just to sort of tire us out. And that's you and your brother? 
my brother, yeah, my brother Kyle, and he started acting at the, roughly the same time. And, you know, he went on, like, he had a show on UPN called Breaker High that he was a series regular on with Ryan Gosling. Around the same era of mm. Are You Afraid. At the very beginning of the show, how old are you, 10, 12? It was 12. Was that your first experience at all whatsoever? Did you do theater at all or anything before then? Yeah, I, I did a lot of theater. A lot of theater. I was in this theater troupe called the Vancouver Youth Theater that toured, and so I had a lot of experience with that. But that Are You Afraid was my first television or film role, and it was a huge deal and a very exciting. And to fly to Montreal and to shoot, and it was like a dream come true. And I think being on set at such a young age, it was very formative. But it was a huge, huge deal, and I was super, super excited. So, did you grow up in Vancouver? Yeah, I grew up there, and then moved in when I was eighteen. I came to college in California, and I haven't really left since. You know, high school weekend, what's that look like for you? I don't know. Maybe so. I think South Carolina might have been more exciting. But I mean, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Small t- <laughs> you know, we hung out with our friends. We'd go to a friend's house and like watch a movie. You know, there was a fair amount of homework or we had like basketball practice or soccer or swimming. We swam. My brother and I swam competitively for like, I don't know, nine years or something. But just I think normal suburban teenage stuff. No break ins or anything like that. No, nothing exciting. No, we're not cool. Nothing, nothing exciting. Super boring suburban kids. I don't even think we drank until like later. Actually, that's not true. We drank a little. We were in like the, with the theater crowd, and when you're with the theater crowd, you're only with older kids, and so you know you learn about alcohol at a younger age. Yeah, theater um, kids get a little loose. They do. <laughs> loose is loose is a good word for theater kids. I think that's a good word. <laughs> You were 12 uh, during Are You Afraid of the Dark? You know, prior to that, is there a, a eureka moment or maybe a, a special, special performance or something you saw that made the light bulb go off and made you want to pursue that? I don't know where it came from. It was something like pretty early on that I wanted to be an actor and my parents were great about letting us pursue it and like starting a theater. And I think, you know, Are You Afraid was like such a seminal moment. I So I wish I wish I could pinpoint, I wish I could say like it was a specific actor or, or a show or something, but it was just a sort of a general feeling or a general kind of calling to want to do it or feel compelled mm-hmm. to do it. Was it a typical audition? Do you remember? You know, you go in, boom, you land it, or was it just like a right place, right time situation? Do you remember much at all? It's probably both. So Nickelodeon was doing these casting calls. I forgot the name of the casting director, and he went to like Vancouver, Toronto, New York, L.A., Florida, and so it was a casting call. They were going to cast the regulars and the and then all the guest actors as well. That kind of casting call, and then I actually went on tour in a play. And I wasn't even anywhere near Vancouver. And then I got a call from my agent and they're like, oh, they would like to see you to do a callback for this role. And I was nowhere near anything. Like I was in the middle of nowhere. I was in the interior of British Columbia. And this is like, you know, before the internet. And so they were like, well, can you put yourself on tape? And I'm like, well, not really. I mean, we don't even, this is 1991, you know, it's like, so that theater production, there had been a documentary that had been done and I'd been in a dramatized scene within it. And so we sent them, we sent them that tape so they'd actually could see me on film. And then I got a call and they were like, okay, pack your bags. Like you're going to Montreal in like two weeks and you're going to be like a series regular on the show. And so it was incredibly exciting like to do all of those things. I was 12. Have you done theater at all since those days? I did theater after that. And then I did theater in college. And I was also doing like different uh, film roles and television, episodic TV and things like that. And I just sort of continued with it until I was about 22 or so. I, I think after college, I sort of thought, 
Now, you know, going into Are You Afraid of the Dark, you know, it's a horror type anthology, but for kids, were you a horror fan at all growing up? Maybe not as much. You know, I think I was sort of more general, like all over the place. But I mean, you know, the show was really popular. And like, I think the pitch of uh, Twilight Zone for kids was really cool. And still, even to this day, I mean, how long has it been? Like 30 some odd years and people are still excited about that show. There's two things to be that people are fans of, you know, you know, there's the camp kid scenes at the beginning that gives you that sense of familiarity from week to week. You know, it's the same kids. Mm -hmm. You can relate to them. And then you have the actual stories themselves. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, everybody has their favorites and whatnot. But it's just they kind of knocked it out of the park with both sets there. That's cool, man. Thanks for saying that. That's really sweet. Yeah, I think that's a testament to DJ McHale, uh, Mm -hmm. a terrific creator. Terrific storyteller. I recently spoke with Ron Oliver. You know, he directed Phantom Cab and a bunch of others. You know that. Uh, you know Ron. So, you know, the Phantom Cab, your story ended up being the first episode of the TV show. Ron said that wasn't initially supposed to be the first episode. Do you remember anything coming up about that during filming? I know that they had shot a pilot for Nickelodeon and they even had a campfire, dead campfire kids. And then they reshot it. Well, at least they replaced the campfire kids completely. So I don't, Ron and DJ would know the answer to that. I actually don't know the answer. Oh, wait, no, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I can't remember. Like we just, you know, kind of touched on the Campfire Kids were one of the most important part of the show. Did you guys, did you guys become friends, that original group of kids or hang out at all? during filming or afterwards yeah you know i think sometimes you know you have a role in a show a character and then that character has certain relationships but in real life you know your your character and you can be so completely different so the way it works was like i was from vancouver ross was from toronto daniel was from toronto rachel was from toronto jim was from florida so and there were like rain and jody were from montreal and so the kids that were from out of town stayed in the same hotel and had a tendency to hang out more because they were together more on weekends. So I would spend more time with Joanna or Rachel and, you know, that kind of sort of, and I, I guess maybe, I don't know if it's clicks, but like sort of gravitate naturally towards certain people. I think it sort of works like that. How many episodes were you guys knocking out per session? I imagined, you know, you would do one, maybe change clothes and then knock out several in a day. That's totally right. We would shoot all the campfire stuff at once it didn't always work like this it kind of seemed to work like this where they would sh- i don't know if this is totally right but they would try to do like the first half of the day would be one episode and then the second half is the second half of the day would be, uh, be the other episode so you don't lose any time in changing wardrobe but that was some some version of that right but obviously with the schedule and, and it sort of you don't finish second episode two and you're on to the next day and then you're back on episode two or so it was yeah it was basically like that you got exactly right was there ever any consideration of using some of you guys for some of the stories? Was that something you guys were interested in? Was that ever on the table or anything? Oh, yeah. We were totally interested. I think they ended up doing that like in later. I only went, I was only in it for like four seasons, and which we can talk about later. But like they would end up doing sort of these crossover shows. I never, I kind of watched part of one, which was like Ross and Daniel in sort of the real world. So they did. They did end up doing it. I don't know exactly when they did that. If it was like the sixth season or. See, I don't sure. remember that one. Yeah, no, it's there. You do like a Google search. Like they, they absolutely did like that kind of crossover. That's crossover is the wrong word, but expanding out. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's sort of what they tried to do with the the recent remake, mm-hmm. which you know everybody has their opinions about it, hit or miss. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Turned it on. I just like I have I have Paramount Plus, so I just kind of was like, oh, let's just take a look at whatever. So. Did you watch any of the old ones at all? Oh, sure. You know, like one of my favorite episodes actually is the tale of the shiny red bicycle, which is actually an incredibly emotional story about this 
guy who's trying to, or this boy is having a hard time moving on from the death of his friend. So yeah, no, and my brother was in an episode, The Tale of the Quicksilver with Tatiana Ali. So that close place to my heart. So yeah, I've, from time to time, I've turned them on. Now that they're digital, I think they're also on Amazon too. It's pretty yeah. easy. Yeah, they're on you Amazon. You just literally like click and it's there. I used to have, my wife makes fun of me, I used to have these tapes from Sinar of our of the episodes <laughs> in the campfire and I had them in a box and I don't think we have them anymore. Well, no, actually we probably do. They're probably in our attic. We don't own a VHS, so, or maybe I got rid of them. I, no, I probably got rid of them because you can buy them like a DVD or some digital version of them. I've never played it myself, but you know, I'm obsessed with uh, retro games and such. I wanted to ask you about the game. You know, how much, did you do voice work on that? Did they use clips from the show? How did that, what yeah, was going on Yeah, they shot. We were in Florida for some promotional stuff, and then they shot specific things for the game, oh. like cut scenes and stuff, and then audio. And then there's a funny story. Like, I remember my brother and his friend, you like this story, actually. Later in high school, my brother was, like, older, and him and his friend, like, smoked weed and then played that game in, like, with the lights off and, like, scared themselves, like, silly. I've not really ever played the game. And so they're like, no, Me it's really scary. I want to play it. Can you find it? I mean, is it... Is it out like on eBay? Or I'm sure it or? is, dude. Like it's the internet has a lot of things out there that you can find one way or another. <laughs> yeah, I've never even really. I think I tried to play it once, but I I never got to see the cutscenes. Like I never saw, you know, how that worked. I'm going to look for it when we get out of here, and if I find it, I'm going to send it your way. Let me know. Yeah, send me a send me a, an email. And let me know or something like how it was. Were you a gamer dog growing up, just in general? Yeah, I like would play sports games. Like I always loved like the EA games, but like I'm terrible at them. Like my <laughs> wife always jokes, and she said, "Actually, you know, I remember that. Like on Are You Afraid? I would bring my Sega NHL '94. Like I remember, I remember that vividly. Like and so on my in my time off when I wasn't doing homework, I would play NHL '94 in my hotel room but my wife always makes the joke and she's like we'll see your video game skills are in 1994 and the games got better and you stayed the same and that's basically right and so <laughs> i think like last year i decided i have retired from video games i am too old i'm just too terrible really you know like i would buy madden and i would buy nba 2k and i'm just like i'm kind of terrible at this so you kind of touched on this earlier but if you don't mind you know what was the reason for your departure from the show was it mutual or did you it have wasn't yeah no on? it was i was going into my junior or senior year of high school and it was like you know pretty serious in terms of like college admissions and getting ready to go to university and i'd also been touring like with theater and I went to DJ like very respectfully, like non, very non-diva like, and was like, hey, you know, I just have to like really concentrate on school. And I know before you sort of set the schedule for next year, right? Like in terms of all the pieces, like, hey, if you can do the campfire in and around these times, I totally can do it. And if you can't, I can't. But it wasn't like a my way or the highway. It was just like very respectful. And he's like, okay, let me see what we can do. And then they, they just scheduling wise, they couldn't do it. And so that was, it was very like, very amicable. And I'd done it for four seasons. Of course, I would have liked to have continued, you know, but I had to do these other things. And I've seen, like, I've seen, D like, DJ and I actually had dinner, like, I don't know, well, it was after pandemic. He's a great guy, just a terrific, terrific person. Do you still have any contact with any of the other kids at all? I haven't. I went, I ran into Joanna once in Ikea. <laughs> that was about <laughs> it. I've seen some of, like, I saw Daniel and ross like well you know you know some interview thing like this but mm -hmm. that's about it like i haven't it's been a long it's been a long time like a really long time yeah i think ross is a uh, weatherman now if i'm correct 
in Toronto. Yeah, he is for sure. We did just talk about the uh, the reboot that they tried to do. I think it's I think it's over already now. But when that came around, was there any attempt by anybody to reach out to you guys for any like cameo roles or special appearance? It did. Or anything? It, it, I'm pretty sure that Jody Jody Daniel and care sometimes I say the character's name and uh, <laughs> and Ross they were in the new one and actually it was actually really cool Netflix had done these little spots that you can find like you can google like Netflix are you afraid of the dark and they did these little spots with the three of them around a campfire but like our age which is pretty cool I mean nobody contacted me it wouldn't it didn't face me at all I didn't know about it. but I did I did see them later on and I was like oh that's really cool and I was like my favorite one is like do you ever watch drunk history Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, my, when they did the Are You Afraid, that that cracked me up. Like, I love that. That was fantastic. <laughs> I haven't seen that specific episode. I'll oh, look it up. you got to see it. It's really good. It's Frank. They do Frankenstein, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Actually, well, they, it's the story of Mary Shelley and Byron Shelley, and it's like, who's in that one? It's really funny. You should totally check it out. It's pretty funny. Take us through the, you know, you just said you informed DJ that you're going to have to go what what happens for you after that? You know, you go to LA, you start college, what happens for you? I went to college and I was still sort of doing like theater acting. And then I would do, like I would interview for some things here and there. And I was on my, the last time I was on TV, my brother was on my brother's show playing his brother. It was like the last episode of Breaker High. And then after that, like after college, my brother and I, when we were acting, we were still going to school. And I think it was fine to sort of like, live both lives but i think the prospect of sort of being an unemployed actor in la and going to auditions and going to acting class three days a week was just for our personalities was just kind of hell like we would spend summers in la auditioning and we just hated it like we just really you know hated it i had an acting teacher at the time and she had said to me she said you know if you wake up in the morning and you have to act and that's the only thing you want to do then you should be an actor and if there is like one other thing you want to do then go do that and like that was very much me i think i loved acting i did not love the lifestyle of being an actor right and so that was sort of the reason for taking a step back and then from there i wanted to be involved with movie making but from more of the producing studio executive route like actually creating stories and in, in the business end and that's what i did after college i went to work at a, a talent agency in beverly hills called endeavor and then i went to work at dreamworks live action i was there for three years and worked on like nine movies and then i was a creative executive for Tom Ford and produced his first movie, A Single Man. And then I started my own company and was working with writers and selling their screenplays to studios. And then more recently started writing myself and I work with a producing partner. So it's sort of been this general evolution over the years, but with the same theme. Right. So with the writing, what's your process look like? Are you a heavy outliner? Do you do you like to sit down and go with the flow? I mean, if, if you can see behind me, like there are two different boards, mm -hmm. um, which is very much from my DreamWorks training because we would use like these storyboards. Very like if you're familiar with screenwriting, like very much like Save the Cat, like Blake Snyder stuff. It's on my table um, right here. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. Is it really? It is, dude. Dude, dude I was reading it today. I was reading really? it today. Yeah. What did you like? What did, what were you, what, what did, where are you? What do you think? I'm literally in the intro. I bought it last week. And what made you decide to do that? Like, how did you find out? Like who told like, I looked up, I just looked up, you know, books on screenwriting and writing, you know, I've been writing short stories for a long time, but I'm like, I don't really know the format and, and I'm not familiar with the format. And I just wanted to get my feet wet. And that just seemed like the book, the book, everybody was raging you, about me. you picked the you know i came to that book later on it's so funny like 
when I got to that book, it was I left DreamWorks. And what was so funny to me is I read the book and I was like, oh, this is everything we did at DreamWorks, like every single day, you know, mm -hmm. like in one book. <laughs> well, that's good to know. And it was a good purchase. It's a great purchase. The way and also the way he conceives of it, like the other books are important in terms, I think, of the study of screenwriting, like Sid Field and, and that. But actionably to write something, I think, is very difficult. Blake's is much more applicable. If you want to, you can take what Blake is saying and it's much more easy. It's easier, I think, to get going, especially to understand it from a business perspective and the way Hollywood kind of looks at it. Yeah. And, and from where they're coming from, I think Blake does a terrific job. And that's really what I was looking for you know is that kind of perspective and like he says in the book you know he uses the lingo that the you know, people in the business use so it doesn't seem as quite as does. foreign yeah and he explains it he explains what this what all that stuff means and it's great he's totally right like the log line stuff like he's right about all that stuff the log line, you know that's it, it took me a long time i used to practice when i was at the agency you know i would i made a database i had this file maker database and every script i would read i would put it in i would enter it in and i would practice writing the log line because it takes time to get your mind to think that way. And, you know, I could always tell like a new writer because you get a log line from them and it would be like this long, <laughs> you know, and you're like, no, that's not what it is. Or the lazy one that, that he talks about that I like, you know, it's, it's RoboCop meets Teen Wolf or, you know, something like that. Right. Or they, yeah, my thing has always been when they give these high concept hybrids that make no sense, you know, it's like, you know, it's like Amadeus meets you know, steel magnolias. And you're like, what is that? I don't know what that means. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, we're kind of talking about it already. So someone sends you a script. What are some red flags that jump off the page to you initially? It's a great question. I mean, one of the first things I think, you know, I'm, I'll, I'll be on a plane somewhere. You, I know you've had this experience. You're on an airplane, go to the bathroom, you're walking back, and then people have their computers out, right? Somebody is always writing dialogue, something, right? The ultimate test there's the ultimate test is how much black ink is on that page. Like when you really look at professional screen screenplays, you realize how much white space is actually there, that it really is showing and not telling. And that also, and the other thing that people would do, I mean, I don't, I don't read screenplays. I'm not, a, I'm not a producer looking to produce other writers. I'm writing myself. I have a producing partner who does that stuff. But you know, one of the things executives used to always do when you get a screenplay, you flip to the back and see how long it is. <laughs> like you know what the pitch is right like let's say it's a horror movie and you look and you and you get it and you go to the back and it's like 125 you're like nope because it's too long you know what i mean like like it's probably got a clock in it like a 105 you know or something like that but it depends on the genre obviously like it's 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 not a, a hard and fast rule but i would say as a new writer the formatting too don't try to be clever and use times new roman it's courier like don't mess around <laughs> people i know that sounds crazy but like if people somebody gets a script and it's not in that in that courier font it's just like oh god what is this right and that and the ink it, you know you can look online you as you said you can find so many things on the internet you can find plenty of screenplays and not the ones that the shooting drafts because you know sometimes when they finished they make these really pretty versions and they sell them like Shawshank Redemption you can buy at a bookstore like I'm talking about like the actual shooting draft and you can really see what it looks like that would help you're talking about the uh the white space in a script and something that popped into my mind is I read the Pulp Fiction screenplay. It just looks so easy when you read the screenplay. If you know how hard it is and how great the movie is, but you're like, I can do that. You know, this is just a great, easy to read screenplay, you know? 
well, he is one of the best. I mean, he has, you know, he has a gift from God. There are very few people that are, that have the gifts that he has that are, he's as effortless. Yeah. I remember somebody had, somebody had broken it down. A writer I knew broke it down. He said, there's three categories of writers. He's like, the first one is like the people where it'll never happen. Like it doesn't matter. They don't have the craft of the talent. He's like, the next category is like the people who they might not have like the gift from God, but they can learn the craft. They can figure it out over time. And the third category is like Quentin, Taylor Sheridan, Shonda Rhimes, which is like, you have a gift from God and it's just effortless for you. But for, as my, as this writer said, it's not effortless for the other people, <laughs> right. but, that's, but that's in anything, right? You know, yeah. like, that's what it's like for Patrick Mahomes. You know what I mean? <laughs> he can do stuff that nobody, no other quarterback can do. Very similar. Exactly. Tarantino is the Mahomes. Right. Or Taylor, Taylor is like that too. You know, like he just has some, this natural ability and Shonda Rhimes is like that. They're just very few people that are that are like that. You did just mention uh, that you started out as a talent agent. Uh, your website says you started in the mailroom. I've always been curious as to how you even get your foot in the door in that realm. What made you want to go that way? I wanted to work behind the camera, and we had like an alumni directory, and I didn't know anybody in Hollywood. I had no relationships. I had no uncle that knew somebody, and so I went through the directory, and I would just pick up different occupations, like screenwriter, producer, lawyer, agent actor not actor but like director and, and i would research those people and then i would cold call and like say can i get 10 minutes and just ask you questions and i'm a grad and blah, blah blah most people call you back and so i remember talking to a guy named greg silverman greg had said look you should go to a talent agency and because the the agencies are the center of the business you've got the talent on one side and you've got the buyers on the other and agents know everything and you that's how you can really learn the business get like an overview of it and so that's exactly what i did so if you're a college grad you know sometimes you need you just need somebody to make an introduction for you but you know they're always looking for people if you're a college grad and you're living anywhere near la new york heck in nashville nashville has i know i mean that's the music business but They've got a William W. Right. in Nashville. I think they got CAs in Nashville too. And you start in the mailroom and you work your way up. And I was I was never an agent. I was an assistant working for agents who represented writers and directors. But you learn the business, how it works, how movies are put together. So it's very invaluable. Now, when you initially moved from Canada to LA, did you do you remember struggling at all? Was it a culture shock? Did you have to adjust? I was in I was in Northern California for for university and so it wasn't i'd been in california and i i was acclimatized you're right there was culture shock when i first moved to the united states but i was i kind of could feel my way around but yeah it was different i didn't actually now yeah i didn't know anybody when i moved to la and now i've been here for 23 years you did mention single man uh you were the producer on that and some pretty big names attached to it how did that project come about i was introduced to tom ford by a producer named linda obst Oh, that's another book you could read. That's not as much about screenwriting. It's about the movie business. She has a book called Hello, He Lied. And anyway, she's a producer. She produced Sleepless in Seattle, Adventures in Babysitting, Contact, Interstellar. And I knew her and she introduced me to Tom Ford. And Tom had left Gucci and wanted to be a director. And she had told him that she, he should hire an executive, somebody that could like help him get material and put it together and develop it and, and sort of put a movie together and stuff. And so he hired me in 2006 from DreamWorks when I was where I was DreamWorks. And so I went to work as his film executive and he wanted to direct the movie. And we took submissions and looked at different projects and stuff like that. And that was a book that he knew well. That was a book that was like seminal to Tom. And I was, we secured the rights 
and um, Tom would end up adapting the screenplay. There was a, another writer who had taken a pass at the, the project and the rights holder had partnered with him. So when we got the book, we got the script too. And then, which was great because there was something to work off of. No puppy, you got to, no, no barking. Come on. <laughs> Sorry, Justin. It's You're fine, man. It's all good. Very unruly. And then so Tom would end up writing it. I ended up developing and frankly writing most of that movie myself. And then we uh, made it. We got Julianne first, I think. No, Colin first, then Julianne, then Matthew Good, and then Nick Holt. And we shot it in the end of 2008. Is that a Seahawks helmet on the back behind you? You're damn right it is. <laughs> well, what's the, is there a story behind it or is this a Seahawks helmet? <laughs> No, see, I grew up, I grew up in, in growing up in Vancouver. My dad and I had season tickets, and because Seattle is only like it's like two hundred miles, and so we would drive, and we would go to the games. And also being in Vancouver, like our local affiliate is Seattle, Washington. So that's the NFL team. That's been my team for like know, thirty plus years. I've been cheering for them for that long, and it was very much like a father son thing, you know, that we did sort of together. So I'm like that. That's my that's my team. It's a lot better than, yeah, I do. I was about to say it's a lot better than my, no, it's the Falcons. Clemson? The Falcons, Atlanta Falcons. Are you going to get Lamar Jackson? If you ask me if I want Lamar Jackson, I, I w- it would be a resounding yes. Do I think we will? No. <laughs> oh, really? I don't think the team will do it, no. It sounds like that deal that he wants is, um, I mean, I'm all for players getting as much money as they can, but it sounds like they're a little far apart on his compensation. Yeah, and you know, when it comes to that much money, the other owners have a say too, you know, because I'm not going to say there's collusion going on, but it is the NFL. No, they're absolutely. And, yeah. <laughs> what are you talking about? There's totally collusion. Because it's like, why would you, if you have one rogue owner that wants to win that says, we're going to set the quarterback bar here, and then that moves everything up. No, yeah, no, you're to- I agree with you completely. We don't have to get into it, but like that was the Colin Kaepernick story. They just drew a line in the sand and they were like, yeah, this is not the NBA. Yeah, yeah, just basically like this. As you said, this is not the NBA and we want to cut this off now. We don't want this politics. We just want to stop. And the only way to do it is that he doesn't play for us. Yeah, the NBA is a much more player driven league, but the NFL is definitely still the good old boys, owners versus players, a whole different monster. I so badly want to go and see some SEC football, man. I would totally like die to go and like watch a game, like go watch Clemson play or go anywhere and see that. I would love to see that one, one day. Are you an NBA fan as well? A little bit. I've been getting back into it more. I can't really take the Lakers on as my team, but I have a lot of friends and family that love the Lakers, so I, I watch it. Uh, so I wanted to ask you while I got you, are there any more books on screenwriting that you recommend besides Save the Cat? That's a great question. I would The fact that you're starting with Blake is awesome because it gives such a great foundational piece. And you can you can read it multiple times. And you can come, like, one of my favorite parts about Blake is how he breaks down. He comes up with his own genres. Like, he says, this is a monster in the house story. Or this is like a golden ticket story. Yeah. Like, And that is so brilliant. Because then he says, okay, Monster in the House. So Fatal Attraction is a Monster in the House. And Psycho is a Monster in the House. And then, and even though they look slightly different, they actually have very similar component parts. And to have a mind that starts looking at genre films in that way is awesome. That is probably one of the most valuable parts, I think, of that book. I think also the logline and how you get into a movie and how he drives the first act. I don't need to get into the weeds about it. Blake's not so good at the end of Act 2. Like He has this whole like Dark Knight of the Soul thing which he didn't even admitted himself when he was alive, that he, he always struggled with the end of Act 2. I would really steer you in the direction of uh, John August has a podcast and a website, and John August and Craig Mazin 
do it together. And Mazin is a story. They're both great. Mazin's like a story god. Mazin is the writer and creator of Chernobyl, but also one of the primer, primary writers of The Last of Us. Gotcha. The show on HBO. Gotcha. And he, my producing partner and I are, are obsessed with Craig Mazin. We actually had found like a transcript of a lecture he gave where he talks about what's called the Aristotelian dialectic, which sounds very complicated, but <laughs> it comes from poetics, from Aristotle's poetic, like all the way back in the day. And it's on that website, actually, on John August, on John August's website, you can find it. It's a little more complicated, but well, what Mazin is saying and what Aristotle is saying is that great storytelling is like taking two ideas and then like smashing them together, like two conflicting things. And that it's called like antithesis and thesis, and they pound together. And then you get something at the end of it. Like The Last of Us, the thesis, the antithesis is to survive versus to live, right? And right. he smashes those things together. And I'll, be, I'll admit, I remember reading that lecture going, this is hard to follow. This is going to take me some time. But when you get more advanced in screenwriting, I think that that Mazin lecture that it gives is just really great. But that that website in general for resources is awesome, is really awesome. But I would say read the book and then read as many screenplays, professional screenplays as you can get your hands on. You know, when I was, you know, from my time at the agencies and my time at DreamWorks, because it's in my database, like I've read 1,400 screenplays. So, you know, you learn a lot. Don't read... No offense, don't read your buddies. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, I got you want to learn from, you know, you're reading like Derek Kolstad's like John Wick spec, you know, or something. You know what I mean? Like, that's who you want to learn from. So since you started out on the acting side of things, Jason, is there something that once you switched to the sort of business side, agency side of things that shocked you? Maybe you didn't realize from the other side. Oh, that's a great question. Okay, that's a great question. You know what really helped was when we were casting a single man. I was now on the other side of the table. And so from having been on the auditioning side and then flipping it back, what I, I learned so much, I think also like when we were auditioning people for that movie, you see really pro actors come in. Like they might not be like name, name, name brand, but they're like people that have been in so many movies, like you've seen them. And so what I really learned was the actor comes in, there's not a lot of bullshit. There's not a lot of like, oh, hey, how's it going, huh? You know? The actor comes in is, is just professional. And then they go into their thing and they're present and they make choices that they think are the right choices. But what I loved the most was as soon as they're done the scene, you can tell in their mind, like, they're on to the next thing. They're not sitting there. Like, I know as an actor for years, you know, you go in there and you, you want to get the role. So you're always like, do they like me? Like, what, what, what did they, did they, did they, is there something, you know? These guys don't do that. They just know that it's outside of their control and they make the choices they make and it's not in their hands. And all they can do is the best that they think and then on to the next. That's what I learned the most. I think, I mean, look, I'm going to go back to acting eventually. I feel I want to I want to do it right. I think I have such a respect for, for acting and I want to do it the right way. I think also my acting background really has helped because, for example, when we made a single man, like, it was very easy for me to communicate with both Julianne Moore and Colin Firth. Now, granted, they're at a completely different level, but it's you understand them and you understand their process and, and, and how they work and things like that. I think, again, having this new appreciation of now being on the other side of the table, I think helped me a lot. You know, as an actor, you think the people making these decisions are, you know, really weighing it in. 
And and what you realize is that the discussions, and I know, I'm not going to single out making a single man. We did this at DreamWorks too, because the discussions are ridiculous. You know, the discussions will be like, her boobs are too small. Oh no, her boobs are, boobs are too big. Oh, she's too slutty. No, she's not slutty enough. Like it's so ridiculous. You know what I mean? So yeah. I think as an actor, just do the best you can, make the best choices, and then forget it and move on to the next the next thing. Don't try to read anything. Don't try to be like they like. Don't worry about that. That's out of your control. <laughs> So from the casting side of things, say if the first person walks in and they knock it out of the park, do you know already, you know, I'm going with this person and you're just going to hear everybody else for, you know, the sake of their time? It's a group. It really is a group process. It depends on the movie. I mean, like at DreamWorks, I worked on movies like Transformers, Collateral, movies like that. And with Transformers, this is who has to weigh in on, on, on Transformers casting. Michael Bay, Steven Spielberg, Hasbro, and sometimes General Motors. So there's a lot of people. I mean, obviously, Michael's voice and Steven's voice is really, really, really important. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot Lorenzo, who's the producer, right? And so it's it's not just, it's not always one person. Right. I mean, it depends on the movie. I mean, obviously, the Tom Ford movie, well, it's Tom Ford's decision. Like, whatever he wants, his movie, it's his money. But in these other films, there's a lot of, there are a lot of people involved. What's the best advice you've received in your career and who gave it to you? Okay, I would go with, when I was at DreamWorks, I was an assistant and we, I remember we did a lunch. It was with Walter Parks and Laurie McDonald. They're producers. You've known a lot of their movies like Gladiator, Men in Black, Catch Me If You Can. If you just look up their credits, right, that's crazy. But Laurie said something I always really liked. And Laurie said, be interested in what you're interested in. And I always thought that was so cool. I just think that that's really, no matter what it is, think about James Cameron. Like he is naturally interested in like deep sea submersibles. He's geeking out to that stuff and learning about it. And then he's like, oh yeah, yeah, I can make the abyss. I can make a movie about this. Like that's the same thing that happened with Titanic. He was interested in Titanic, just interested in it, loved it, loved studying it. And then it was kind of like, I wonder if I could turn this into a story. And then he did. And then he looked at it and went, wow, this is actually pretty good. Oh, shit. I guess I'm going to have to do this. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so I just think when you have a passion for whatever the heck that thing is, I think that matters. If you're chasing trends, you know, where you think, oh, well, this is in or this is popular. I don't think it works. You know, I've, it was, when I was an assistant, when I was at the agency, we had a writer and he would come up with a new spec, it seemed like every three months. But what was so clear is like he was writing for the market or what it sold, but his screenplays were kind of soulless. There was no passion. There was no, he had no excitement about what he was doing where he was like, I have to tell this story. So why not? I think I would use Laurie's quote of be interested in what you're interested in. I think that's right. So this is something I like to ask everybody, Jason, because you never know what they're going to say. Have you ever had an experience that you would consider supernatural or paranormal? I was at a friend's house and she, her and her husband live in Chatsworth in LA, the LA area. It's known for like a lot of paranormal stuff. And she herself also attracts a lot of, she has like, she just had a lot of experience with it. So yes, I, there's a, you know, I was at their place and there's just this feeling of there's something there and you can't explain it. So I, I won million percent. You said supernatural paranormal. I mean, I wish I had more experiences like that, but I, I won million percent believe that stuff. Like if it's, there's other dimensions and we just can't perceive them. You know, I remember when my father died, I remember being at my brother's house for the first Christmas. I remember being in the bathroom, like, you know, crying, having a hard time. And I remember him feeling like he was with me. You know what I mean? And that was just in that moment. You know, other times, you know, my mother will say something like, oh, your father's with you. And I'm like, I, he might be, he's just not in Los Angeles. So I do believe in that stuff. 
How about you? Have you have you had like a bunch of sightings? I've, of course, you know, I think everybody's had a few things that you can't explain happen to you throughout your life. And I, I have like covers pulled off me in the middle of the night, you know, like literally I saw them levitating off my body and I look down at oh. the covers and then the covers get pulled off my body. It's only happened one time ever. And it just happened to be the one night where I stay at my grandmother's house and it was in the room where my deceased great grandmother used to sleep. So that happened the first night I was in there. That's just a little something. So I don't know. Just very interesting. That was a long time ago. My friend Sasha, she has it happened a lot. And they were, and she always talked about it like spirits that are trapped in an area that are sort of in purgatory that they're, they're, they want attention. They're just like, help me, you know? And they're not trying to scare anybody, they're just like, help. And so somebody's probably trying to get your attention. Your great, as you said, like your great grandmother or whatever is trying to get your attention. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's that's the same thing my grandma said. Yeah, I wasn't. I, it didn't um, scare me at all when it happened. That's awesome. Just to put a big bow on everything, Jason, I'll yeah, let you yeah. go. What's on the horizon for you? Is there anything in the pipeline that you can share? No, we're just working. I mean, there's there's me and my producing partner. There are five. I mean, you want to talk about like be interested in what you're interested in or be driven by what your passions are. Like, I never thought I was going to be a screenwriter. That was not something I wanted to do, but. I do feel a compulsion, which is there are five stories, very specific stories that kind of have to get out of me before I die. And I know what they are and I know what order I'm going to write them in. And I was blessed really to find this producing partner and she's super talented and, and super genius. And we work incredibly well together. And so we're just trying to make our way through, through that. And at times we research future films at the same time as we're doing this one. We're working on this horror movie. We're going to finish this horror movie first, which is what is behind me. And then we're going to move to the next and the next and the next and the next. And then by the time we get to five and I, that's it. I will have nothing else to say. Are they all different um, genres? Mm-hmm. They're all different. It's like horror, action, back to the future, then the Godfather, then like another thriller. But yeah, they're all they're all different. You know, I think for me, like I really admire, like my favorite storytellers are Billy Wilder and James Cameron. And and as a screenwriter, like I really admire Bill Goldman because he could write in, most writers, they stay in one genre. And Goldman can do All the President's Men and Princess Bride, same guy. In order to do that, where you literally can cook French and Chinese and Mexican, you have to really know cooking. Yeah, And that's where that Blake, book really comes in well because he distills down oh you're gonna write a thriller okay well this is what this cuisine looks like oh you're gonna write a drama oh this is like french okay that looks like this right but then there's also just some universal aspect of storytelling regardless of the genre but like cooking you got to know what genre or cuisine you're in and what you need to do because the audience expects that and i think what's also so exciting is that in this digital world people younger than us, they're exposed to more narrative than any other generation. They can watch all this stuff. So they're they're much more sophisticated in terms of storytelling than we ever were because we yeah. just didn't have the same access that they have. On that same vein, you know, how do you feel with just like you said they have more access and there's also way more material so as a screenwriter and a storyteller you have a lot more competition i feel like these days so you have to be Absolutely. even more crisp and more on top of your game than ever yeah my producing partner and i've spent a lot of time like developing those ideas and and we have very specific sort of theories about how you would do that because in such a crowded world what we always talk about too is like you're not just competing against the stuff in the marketplace <laughs> you're competing against everything that's ever been made why do I need to go watch Dungeons and Dragons when I can watch Friends reruns or The Office reruns or I can throw in Princess Bride or whatever, right? 
So that's really, I believe that things like Avatar or The Last of Us have certain essential ingredients and that might be invisible to most people, but that is why they get the numbers that they get. And it's why the streamers are having a really hard time because the old Hollywood model is like an ingredients model. It's not really about the cuisine or the principles of cooking as much of it's like, oh, this is an ingredient from a successful movie and another ingredient from another successful movie and I'm going to put them together and it'll be successful again. Yay. And it's like, nope, that's not how it works. <laughs> and they're losing a lot of money doing that very thing. And they haven't figured it out. Marvel's figured it out. Pixar's figured it out. James Cameron has figured it out. Craig Mazin has figured it out. Shonda has figured it out. Taylor has figured it out. But a lot of other people are just losing a lot of money. And Wall Street is kind of getting sick of this growth model. Well, Jason, yeah. it's, I don't have anything else for you, man. Like I said, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And uh, I look forward great to seeing those, you, your five stories. Thanks, man. That was great. And best of luck with it, seriously. And that book, read it. I've read that book like five times. It'll save you time, though, too. You know, like, because, well, you know, you, you, you know, let's say you, you don't. This is a Blake quote. It's in the book. I think it's in the, one of the earlier chapters. And he says, writing a novel is like swimming in the ocean and writing a screenplay is like swimming in the bathtub. You know, it's like, it's a crafted art form. Like, yes, it's creative. It's a very structured art form. Like a Shakespearean sonnet is also very structured. It has a rhyme scheme, it has like 14 stanzas. Screenwriting is the same thing. So it's so smart that you're using that book that saves you time as opposed to yes. writing 120 pages and then getting to the end and going, oh shit, like, I don't know what act breaks are. <laughs> Uh, I don't know what a midpoint is. Uh, second act. Uh, I don't know. What to, yeah. But, you know, that book is awesome. Like, I always loved how when I learned what a midpoint was, and then you start watching movies, and then you're like, you pause it where you think the midpoint is. And you look at the time counter and go, oh, shit, that's, that is literally the middle of the film. That is pretty cool, I think. Yeah, it's it's cool to be able to dissect it after you kind of know what know what's going on. Good man. Well, I'm happy for you, and I think that you're doing everything right. That's great. Well, thank you, Jason. I'm a, you, your work influenced a lot of us, myself included, growing up, and it was a <laughs> great chance to get to talk with you. Cool, man. Take care of yourself. All right, you have a good one now. All right, take care. All right, folks, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Jason. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next time. Monsters Madness and magic. <laughs> Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day all with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.